This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, a conversation with Chris Hughes, author of the book Fair Shot Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn. He's interviewed by Representative Don Beyer, a Democrat from Virginia. This interview from our archives took place in 2018. Welcome to this wonderful book discussion. Thank you for joining Chris Hughes and me. Uh, Let me jump right in. Chris, you talk about, quote, the power of unrestricted cash transfers to transform the lives of people. Um, I know you came to this slowly but surely, but every time I ask others about this idea, they say, why should we trust people? Won't this make them dependent and lazy? How do you answer that from your own experience? Well, uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having a conversation today uh, on this very important topic. I think, um, you know, I wrote the book to make the case for unconditional cash, as, um, but I wanted to ground it in my own personal experience. So I grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Hickory, North Carolina. It was at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains, and my mom was a, a public school teacher, my dad was a traveling paper salesman, and we had a very stable middle-class existence. And in my own life, I got financial aid to go to a fancy boarding school, then on to Harvard, where we started Facebook in 2004, and um, the rocket ship rise of, of uh, Facebook uh, you know, is a, is a pretty well-known story. But in my own case, I ended up making quite a bit of money at a young age, and it forced me to think about, well, what is the most powerful way we can help rebalance the economy so that the 0.1% who keeps getting so lucky is actually not getting lucky at the expense of everybody else. And so that took me on a long journey of uh, looking at what is the most powerful way to help people get ahead. And it turns out the evidence is pretty clear on this point, that if you provide people with cash, unconditional cash, no strings attached, then they invest it in themselves, in their families, in their communities, their kids do better in school, their health outcomes are better, they work just as much, if not more. So uh, I think to answer your question, the real, the, the reason to empower people with cash is um, not only to, to make the moral case that we can wipe out poverty with it, but also the pragmatic one, that uh, people in, want to invest in themselves, and there's no more efficient way to do that than providing people with with uh, the cash to do so. Chris, what do you say to the skeptics who will argue they'll just spend more money on tobacco or alcohol? Is there any research to support that or oppose that? Well, we actually know a lot about what people do when um, when they when they get cash when when, when they have an opportunity to invest in themselves. So there are. There's quite a lot of studies that show that providing people with the resources, more often than not, they invest in themselves and their families. There will always be one or two people out of 100 who don't use the money in a way that many people would deem responsible. But on balance, people don't spend more money on alcohol. They don't smoke anymore. In fact, the opposite happens. When they're able to have a little bit more financial stability, there's every reason to believe that people eat healthier, that they invest in their families, that their health outcomes improve. And so I think when people ask the question about, why well, isn't everybody just going to spend the money on booze and cigarettes, really they're asking a question that's fundamentally about trust. And, it, and it's a question about really what, what we consider to be 
um, uh, the the uh, the right thing to do, the right way to help the the poor in particular. And there's a sense that that we should just build more government programs, that we should build more regulations to tell people to do this or that with the money. When in reality, if we can just ground ourselves in the data and challenge some of those fundamental assumptions, then I think um, uh, we do well to use cash to invest in people. And by the way, this is not just a sort of left-right kind of issue, specifically the earned income tax credit which is the world's largest cash program, and it's uh, the size of $70 billion here in the United States, has been supported by people on the left and the right, despite concerns about, well, do people really use this money effectively? And it's because there's an immense amount of evidence to show that people are responsible with the money when they're provided it, and that it's the most efficient way to lift people out of poverty and provide economic opportunity. Every president since Gerald Ford, Republican and Democrat alike, has meaningfully invested in expanding the earned income tax credit. And so I think there's a good uh, case to be made that this is that there's, there should be bipartisan appeal on the issue. Well, Chris, wasn't this earned income tax credit originally a, a Milton Friedman idea among the most conservative economists? Yeah, the, the, the EITC came um, out of actually the last big debate that we had around a guaranteed income in the United States. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, it was widely accepted on the, on the left and the right that a guaranteed income could be the most powerful way to ensure that no one lived in poverty in America and the most efficient way economically to provide economic opportunity. So Milton Friedman who uh, was an early uh, proponent of the idea, talked about it and wrote about it extensively in that, in that era, at the same time as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was making the same case, more from a moral perspective, but at the same moment in history. Richard Nixon, as, um, as I'm sure you know, supported the idea of a guaranteed income, and it even passed the House. It eventually failed in the Senate, and, and, if you will, went underground for several decades. But the earned income tax credit was um, one of the policies that came out of that. So it was, it was a, a, a kind of stepping stone, if you will, to, um, uh, that over time has been expanded and expanded again and again because it has been effective. So now I think we have a new moment, a new opportunity to talk about the changing nature of work in the United States, to talk about poverty and economic mobility in this moment when income inequality is at historic levels. And we would do well to ground that conversation in um, a conversation about how, how cash can be the most powerful way to combat the inequality and provide the economic opportunity. Chris, how do you address the irony that Mick Mulvaney, head of the OMB, Office of Management and Budget, has suggested that On food stamps, instead of making food stamps relatively unrestricted, we should ship people boxed meals. Is this not moving exactly the wrong direction from your unrestricted cash transfers? I think that I I I agree. I think that would be a move in in the wrong direction. I think that ironically, um, that kind of outlook that would drive somebody to um, design a, a boxed meal rather than providing people with cash is um, is a kind of paternalistic view of government, which, which ironically on the right, um, many people 
particularly on the libertarian right, have been skeptical of for a very long time. And so any kinds of movements to um, tell people what to spend the money on or even to, to uh, these cynical moves to tie a lot of the benefits that exist today to work requirements as a way to throw people off of the rolls, I think are moving in the exact wrong direction. But I think it's part of a pattern of, of, um, of uh, economic thinking that comes from this administration, which is more focused on doubling down on debunked, trickle-down economics, which over the past 40 years have created record profits for companies, but kept median wages flat while the cost of living has increased, instead of working on that problem, they're doubling down on that theory. And corporations today are very happy about it. I mean, the stock market is near record highs. And um, it's my view that that may, be, that may feel good to some in the short term, but it's a sugar high. It is, it is going to, it, it's that, that bubble is going to burst. And what's more, it, it's just from a, 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 an ethical perspective, the idea that we should be cutting rates on corporations and telling poor people specifically what they should be eating, both of those things just seem fundamentally out of line with where the country is today politically and the long-term values that we want to share, the values of respecting the dignity of everyone to make their own choices, their freedom to be the masters of their own destiny, and the responsibility that I think we all have to ensure that no one in America in 2018 lives in poverty. Yes, some have described it as socialism for the rich and market capitalism for the poor. So tell me, so the original proposal in your book was $500 per month for families making less than $50,000 a year. So $6,000 a year. How many people would be lifted out of poverty through this? How many people would receive payments? What's the, what's the overall structure look like? Well, where we want to go in the long term is an income floor that ensures nobody in America lives in poverty. So a lot of people talk about a universal basic income these days as that big idea. And there's lots of different ways to slice and dice it to interpret the, the idea in a robust debate about how it might work. I'm very focused on the income inequality that exists today and what we can do right now to create a first major step towards the eradication of poverty and the restoration of opportunity for the middle class. So in my view, we can build on and expand what we know works to take the earned income tax credit, significantly expand it in size, and make it flat so it's easy to understand so that everybody who makes less than $50,000 in the United States and who's working in some way for their, for their families or their communities benefits from an income floor of $500 a month every month per adult. On this order of magnitude of a, of a benefit is, is big and would be expensive. You know, it's about half of what the cost of defense is today. But it would lift 20 million people out of poverty overnight and stabilize the lives of 90 million Americans who very much need not only a, a boost to their bottom lines, but the kind of stability of being able to count on the $500 a month in the background. So it is, it is, a, it is um, 
I think, a powerful way to uh, begin the work to establish an income floor that in the long term could potentially be even bigger. Um, but in the here and now today, to me, this is a place that we don't have to worry about or we don't need to talk about whether the robots are coming for all the jobs in 2030. We know that this kind of policy could be massively impactful in the here and now. Talk a little bit about the philosophical idea that the poor know best how to solve their own problems rather than government. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a... There, there's a sense in the in um, the country, particularly actually among elites, on the left and the right, that um, we just it, we the experts can engineer the progress that we want to see. And I became pretty skeptical of that idea myself. And my original the way that I I became skeptical of it was actually um, from the perspective of philanthropy to begin. So after Facebook went public in 2012, my husband and I made a commitment to give away the vast majority of our wealth over the course of our lifetimes. And um, in taking on that challenge, we began to look at all the different nonprofits that were out there doing good work. And specifically, I was looking at economic opportunity in that period internationally. And I have a whole chapter in the book that relates a, a journey that I went on um, over the course of several years, but specifically highlighting a couple moments in that journey in the book, where um, uh, I spent time with one nonprofit that was working in Africa to try to engineer progress. So this idea was that if we could just invest enough in education and in healthcare and in roads, sanitation, fertilizer, agricultural training, I mean, just all of these different benefits and um, build all of this administration and bureaucracy around a small village, then all of a sudden we could lift everyone out of extreme poverty. And I went on a trip to go visit one of those villages and um, became pretty skeptical pretty fast. We um, went on a walk and this was on the in a village called Dirtu on the Kenya and Somalia border, and um, we went into some dormitories that had been recently built to house students, and there wasn't really anything in the dormitories. No sheets on the beds and pencils, books, the kinds of things that you would expect kids to have, and it felt a little wrong. So I asked, and I said, oh, well, we just cleaned it up beforehand. We went to the health clinic. And um, it, too, was very clean, very orderly, as if no one was using it. Later, we went and they showed, the, they showed me the computer, because I'm the, you know, in theory, the tech guy who is there to be impressed by the connection to the Internet. And um, you ask the teacher, well, what do you use it for? And he was like, everything. And there was little specificity. It, it turns out that a journalist you know, later chronicled the story in this particular village. Those computers had never been used. They were later stolen. And the villagers themselves were not able or willing or um, interested to take advantage of so many of these opportunities and eventually um, even petition the Kenyan government to, uh, to, to push out the nonprofit that was administering this. And so I mentioned this this story because it's like it's it's indicative of this idea that we can just engineer progress. 
And that is in direct contrast to the idea that um, we can use cash to enable the beneficiaries themselves to choose what they want and to invest in themselves to uh, to uh, create their own lives, to create their own stories. And so another nonprofit that I got involved with and later went on the board of, Give Directly, took a very different approach. Provided cash, unconditionally, no strings attached. And what's more, an independent group ran a random control trial to measure the exact impact of that cash. Did it get wasted? Was it used uh, productively? And they found results that are in line with hundreds of other studies which show that dollar for dollar cash is one of the most, if not the most effective policy that's um, that's out there. So I think in the United States context right now, there's a big question about, you know, who do we trust more to, to um, uh, or who should we invest in at this moment in time? More complex government programs that lecture the poor on how to spend their money, how to behave, etc., or the poor and many in the middle class, too, who haven't gotten a raise in decades and who we know, when provided with cash, invest in themselves and their families. And this is a big debate. I don't want to oversimplify it or say that it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a small one. This is a big debate that goes to the core of who we want to be as a country, but I think it's time that we uh, uh, have a conversation that that puts the emphasis on what we know already about how people use money and uh, brings more people uh, to the place where they feel that they can trust in one another and trust in other Americans to be to be the the, the masters of their own destiny. Chris, in your book, <clears throat> I was fascinated by the examples you pointed out around the world, people that are trying this. Uh, but there is one really close to home. There's a state that has had a, uh, a unrestricted cash transfer for a while. Which state and how has that worked out? Uh, well, up in Alaska, they have a, um, uh, a small kind of guaranteed income. And the story behind the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend is, um, is in some ways an unexpected one. So a re- Republican governor back in the 70s, when Alaska was enjoying um, a, a, a huge amount of economic abundance, if, if you will, decided that he would place a small royalty on oil and gas companies, and they would pay a few percentage points of their profits into a common fund every year. And that fund would distribute 2.5% in dividend checks to every single Alaskan, man, woman, and child. Uh, The idea um, was put up for a referendum in Alaska and passed overwhelmingly. And so for the past 30-plus years, every Alaskan, 700,000 Americans, has benefited from a permanent fund dividend check. It's about $1,500 every year. comes in October. And if you're a family of four, I mean, you, you're getting a check for $6,000 every fall, which um, is a meaningful amount of money. It's not so much money that people can hang out and put up their feet and, you know, uh, uh, play video games or, um, 
or drop out of the, the workforce. But it is enough money to help people make ends meet just a little bit ease, uh, more easily. So several of my colleagues and I were in Alaska last fall talking to people about what they do with the dividend and the empirical research about what people do with it backs up many of the stories that we heard. It was people who were using it to cover a month or two of rent that they were behind on. Some folks were using it to prepare for the winter, buying um, uh, heating fuel. Others were saving it for their college education. And then upper middle class and wealthy people were using it to fund a vacation in January or February when all the Alaskans want to go somewhere warm um, when it's uh, when it's when it's uh, when it's pretty bleak and cold up there. But my the, the the biggest learning that I think we can take away from the permanent fund and how it's used is that not only do people love it because it provides them with a little bit of breathing room, it is also one of the most powerful factors to uh, to uh, to be back against the poverty rate in the state of Alaska, to lower that rate significantly, and to contribute to the fact that Alaska is actually the most equal state in the United States of America. And um, I, I think that there's a lot that, that we can learn from it. And, and by the way, you know, the idea that people, pe- people when you go to Alaska, this is not, this is not welfare, this is not a handout. This is something that each Alaskan benefits from and each Alaskan can use as they see fit. And so we know culturally that it's, uh, that it's very much possible to create this income floor with this kind of security, have it be massively popular and have it be massively effective. And I think it's a, it's a great provocation for, you know, how could we create a kind of Alaska for America kind of program. I mean, Hillary Clinton talked specifically about evaluating that idea as part of her campaign in 2016. She did not end up advancing it, but in her book, she makes the case that um, it's one of the, the one of a small set of ideas that she wished she'd thought more about because of the, the boldness of it and because of the power of it to, ca- to combat poverty and provide mobility to the middle class. And Chris, I would argue that it's not a small idea either you know, we struggle so much on Capitol Hill with how to overcome income inequality. We realize now that, uh, as you write about in, in a winner-take-all economy, uh, our income inequality is the largest it's been since before the market crash in 1929. And we're moving very much in the wrong direction. And your Alaska example um, shows that this guaranteed income may be the single biggest step we can take towards creating income inequality without you know, massive um, uh, other changes in the structure. So thanks so much for pointing I out that, that Alaska, of all places, is dead last <laughs> or, or dead first in terms of its income equality rather than inequality. I, I think that's right. And I think it's important to say that cash is not a silver bullet. I wouldn't want you or any of the viewers to think that I'm sitting here saying that um, cash is going to solve all of our problems. I think we need... Uh, uh, Great, good schools. We need a healthcare system that provides um, accessible to affordable accessibility to affordable healthcare to all Americans. We've got to think about um, smart skills building and training. There are many things that we need to do. However, I do think that we often jump to these systemic solutions first, 
rather and, and we, we we miss that sometimes the best solution is the simplest. And so I, I think we would do well to think about cash and the creation of an income floor of a kind of guaranteed income in America in conjunction with a lot of these benefits, not instead of them. But I, I do be- truly believe that it could be the most powerful tool um, in the um, in the toolbox to accomplish many of the goals and uh, that I think you and I share. Chris, uh, there are, in a book full of fascinating ideas, I want to read just from uh, one on page 155, where you say that small amounts of regular cash reduce the feeling of living on the brink, which research unsurprisingly shows causes immense amounts of stress and poor decision-making. And you talk about uh, Rutger Bergman's TED Talk, mm. that people aren't poor because they make bad decisions. They make bad decisions because they're poor. Can you expand on that idea? Well, I think there's... Um, Rutger speaks to this, uh, as you um, mentioned, but there's a, whole, there's a whole body of psychological research which suggests that when people feel and live scarcity, when they're feeling like they're on the brink, there's a limited amount of resources and they don't know how they're going to be able to make ends meet. It makes them more stressed and depletes the uh, uh, cognitive function. So one specific study that um, is indicative of a whole set of others. It was done in a, um, in a mall in New Jersey and you um, ask people, what would you do if you had to, if your car broke down? And the cost of repairing the car was going to be $300. So they asked these groups of people, uh, wealthy people and, or middle class people and uh, poor people, that question. And then immediately afterward, had them each do an IQ test. And unsurprisingly, they had the same IQs after, e- even after being asked this question about, well, what would you do if your car broke down? You had $300, and it would cost $300 to fix it. Then immediately after, they said, okay, well, what would you do if your car broke down and it cost $3,000 to fix it? And they then had each group take another IQ test. And what you saw is in that second scenario, the middle class people, the folks who had financial security, did just as well as they did five, ten minutes before. The group that was living closer to the edge saw their IQ points drop by about 12 points, which, just to give some context for it, is about what you see. uh, It's the level of an IQ drop that you see when you test people after they've pulled an all-nighter. And so what that demonstrates, the way that that, that, that experiment has been um, interpreted, is that when you shift the cognitive outlook of someone from a place of financial security and you begin to, to ask people to think about, well, how are you going to be able to cover a kind of cost that you cannot cover? It introduces a whole level of stress, a whole level of distraction, that when they then move on to other tasks, that doesn't just immediately go away. That very much stays in place. And so if we imagine, if we then zoom out and think about what's going on in America, we know that half of Americans can't find $400 in the case of uh 
of an emergency, like a car breaking down or a, or a healthcare emergency. Half of Americans, which is many people in the middle class, not just the poor, are literally they're they're living on that brink. And you know, so so when we talk about um, the stress that comes with that, there's a very real human cost, and there's also an economic cost because those people are are uh, you know constantly thinking about how they're going to be able to make ends meet. So the power of a guaranteed income is not just to combat income inequality that, as you mentioned, is at record levels. It's also to create some semblance of stability. $500 a month that you know is going to arrive in your bank account every single month by a direct deposit or uh, by a debit card that you know that you can rely on. And that stability, I think, is um, is as important, particularly with the changing nature of work and the rise of, gig- of the gig economy, as the income inequality that the benefit that the guaranteed income would also uh, would also combat. Chris, so we're talking about giving this to people who are working. What about folks that can't work because they're staying home, taking care of an elderly, infirm parent, or they're they're raising kids? or they have a disabled brother or sister they're taking care of. How do you deal with those folks? Well, I have my, my view on this, I have, a, I have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this, is that we need to expand the definition of work, the definition of work that you and many other people in government use, and connect it to what you know, everyday people already recognize as what work really is. So when we talk about work just conversationally, you know, a, a young parent, a mom or a dad who's staying home with a young child who's um, uh, and, and working to raise that family, most Americans see that as work. Similarly, if you have an aging parent and you're involved in elder care, and you're at home taking care of that parent, that is, in my view, work. And I think we call it, we call it that. Similarly, education. You know, students are working hard. They may not be getting paid for it, but they are, uh, they are workers in a broad sense of the term. So I think as long as you are doing something for your family or your community, you should not live in poverty. That's the fundamental... Uh, value that a guaranteed income, uh, uh, I think, uh, should support. But we need to really expand the definition of work. Now, there are still some people who um, who won't fit that. You know, for instance, the disabled or the elderly. Uh, and I think that that is why the social safety net is so critical. And you know, I had an uncle who was on disability benefits for much of his life, he could not have survived without Social Security disability. Um, Those kinds of benefits, I think, need to be supported, reinforced, and expanded, and not cashed in to, to pay for any of the other guaranteed income. And it's, in fact, only when those things work in concert with one another can we create true security and financial stability for Every single American, I think that's um, that's a that's a that's a key um, uh, value of, um, of of how the guaranteed income 
I, I think should work, and it's a and it's important thing to to know. I really very strongly believe that this should be additive and built on top of the existing benefits, so that we can make sure that everyone in America is provided for. I certainly know when my when our children were young and my wife was staying home taking care of them, she pointed out she was working much harder than when she was working out in the in the the outside world, and the the unfairness Absolutely. of the the homemakers, the people who are rearing children, not having any social security contribution, has just always really bugged me. I just look at the difference yeah, between and it, and what I get and what she gets at the at the end of our working careers, and it's very unfair and very different. And it's and it structurally disadvantages women and people of color who are those who are most likely to be in those roles. So. Um, those are groups that we've often overlooked with social policy. And the idea that, you know, we have to ask, um, you know, a mother of kids to go leave her kids and take on all the child care expenses to go work at Burger King in order to qualify to be doing real work in order to qualify for many benefits. Um, I just think that's, I think that's dated. And I think that that's indicative, uh, again, of a kind of paternalistic state, you know, um, prescribing behavior to people when what we want more of is recognizing the work that's already happening and ensuring that we can make good on the on the promise that if you're um, if you're doing something for your family or your community, you you know, you, you shouldn't live in poverty. And Chris, I assume the numbers that you talked about lifting 20 million people directly out of poverty, affecting was it 60 million overall or 90 million overall? Those include those homemakers, those caretakers, the, those students. Yes. And one of the fascinating statistics Absolutely. in your book was uh, that black mothers have a 76% workforce participation rate, whereas white men only a 72%. It's, it's, it's again, it's yeah. sort of against, uh, against the, the popular myths, at least, of who's working yeah, and who's, I who's think putting out in the society. I think that there is this pervasive myth in the country of um, uh, of of kind of under quote unquote underclass of people who just want to hang out and don't want to work. And I think that's left over from the Reagan era. But I think we should also be clear that a lot of the conversation around welfare in the in the Clinton years, um, you know, bought into that kind of frame. And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. The the you know, the data shows, as you highlight, that um, uh, workforce per- participation is actually lowest among uh, white men who historically we've viewed as being the, the you know, the hardworking um, uh, folks who are headed out to the factories every day. But today, those are the folks who are working um, the least. And there are big questions about why that is, and I think a guaranteed income would um, uh, invest in uh, many of the folks who are suffering from the structural changes in our economy today. But it's, um, it's so key for us to understand that, uh, that uh, the, the myth of the welfare queen that's out there is just that. It's, it's a myth which works to reinforce certain biases and stereotypes about uh, about the poor, which has no basis in real data. Now, Chris, there may not be any research on this yet, and I didn't see it directly addressed in your book. 
Uh, but we're all very familiar with the opioid crisis and the 60,000, 70,000 lives I think it took last year in America. It's the same folks that are living on the brink that seem to be most affected by the opioid crisis. Can you speculate about the positive impact a guaranteed income would have on, on this health care dilemma we're dealing with? Well, I think that um, you know the op- opioid crisis is so complex because it has multiple um, multiple causes and no clear magical um, solution. I think that that's why, as a country and as a culture, we should spend all the more time paying attention to what's happening. I mean, when we think about what's causing it, the the growth in prescription painkillers, the some of the unfortunate innovations in drug delivery that came out of uh, uh, that came out of the past 15 decades you know cell phones making it easy for people to access drugs more conveniently and you know um, a, the fact that a lot of the country is suffering from deindustrialization and um, that's uh, particularly in many of the places that are the hardest hit by the opioid crisis. So um, I think that the, there are a lot of very smart people talking about what are the solutions to, um, uh, to that problem, everything from reforming um, prescription painkillers to substance abuse clinics, et cetera. I do also think that uh, we need to provide economic opportunity to the individuals who want to work. There's a there, which is effectively, in my view, every American, and the um, the issue is in many of these communities where uh, where there is suffering from deindustrialization. The idea that that people should just you know take care of themselves just doesn't line up with the lived experience on the ground. I'll give you one example. Last um, summer, I was in Ohio, and I was talking to. A, um, a young woman who was um, the mother of a couple kids. She had uh, a job in uh, in retail, and I asked uh, many questions. One of but one of which was, "Don't you do you, you want to go back to get retrained for other for um, another job?" And what she said to me is, "By all means, of course." She's like, "Let's talk about how I'm going to do that." And I said, "Okay." And she said the local community college where uh, those classes are is 45 minutes away. This was just outside of Youngstown um, in, uh, in Ohio, and the closest, uh, the closest campus location was about 45 minutes away. The cost of the yearly tuition was $8,000. Now, she could get financial aid, and um, by her rough estimates, it would cost her about $1,000 to um, enroll for a year. And then we got onto the logistics of how she's going to be able to go to these classes. So she, you know, classes meet every Tuesday and Thursday at 10 a.m. or Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 7 p.m. But she has to get into a job where she's going to be able to tell her boss, I need off every Tuesday and Thursday morning. And I need you to schedule around me. Which um, anybody who's familiar with scheduling, particularly in the low-wage retail sector, right now, um, workers don't even have any idea of how many hours they're going to get this this week or next week, let alone specifically what days they're going to need to to work. Then, in addition to all of that, the costs of childcare to cover um, 
the uh, her children for when she's in class or in school and the gas money to get there and to get back not to mention the law lo- the the lost wages from the time itself i mean the point is, the point isn't that there are so many barriers we should just give up and she was just you know totally stuck the point is we can have the most incredible education system ever we could have fantastic programs at that local community college but if people don't have the basic foundation to, of of financial stability to be able to pay a babysitter to be able to have negotiating power to get into a job where there is some predictability around the the shifts to be able to afford the the lost hours then they're not able to take advantage of many of these um, many of these opportunities. So I I um, I think it's so critical when we talk about all of the the reasons that the opioid crisis has happened and all of the economic mobility um, solutions that many people um, spend a lot of time thinking about that we don't lose sight of the you know just the 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 uh, fundamental lack of of. Um, financial security that people need to be able to take advantage of many of those opportunities in the first place. Chris, so far we've talked all about all the good this guaranteed income would do, but where does the money come from? How do we pay for this in a, in a federal budget that's already very, very upside down? <laughs> well, I think that there are, there are a lot of ways to finance a guaranteed income. My view is that... Um, the clearest way is to ask those who have done the best in the new economy to pay their fair share, and that is people like me. So specifically to bring tax rates on income above 250000 back up to where they were historically. That's at 50%. And close some of the most egregious loopholes in our tax code, like the Buffett rule, which enables billionaire investors like Warren Buffett to pay a lower tax rate than his executive assistant. If we do those two things, then I think they would bring not only balance back into the tax system overall, but they would would raise enough uh, revenue to be able to lift 20 million people out of poverty overnight. They, um, the, the, ta- the tax rates of roughly that level are what we had for the decades following the Second World War when we had immense economic growth and that economic growth was broadly shared. We had broad-based prosperity. So um, this, for me, is not about, um, you know, pitchforks coming for the rich. It's It's about what we owe one another. I think we all should invest in an America to provide economic opportunity to all Americans. And what's happened right now in our economy because of the way that we've structured it, it's just become egregiously unfair. And the gains are uh, uh, consistently going to the top 1% and to the top 0.1% rather to everyone else. So this is bringing it back into line. You mentioned the, you know, the upside down tax code that we have. You know, the, the cost of what I'm talking about over the next decade is just a little bit more than the cost of the Trump tax reform bill that was passed at the end of last year. So anybody who's out there who thinks, well, this is like, 
you know, such a far-fetched idea. This is far too expensive. I think the question really is, is what are our priorities as a country? Is, if it's so easy to, you know, think about one and a half trillion, two trillion dollar tax cut on corporations, why can't we think about that when it comes to working people? In fact, I mean, I, I very much think that we should, and it is doable. It is expensive, to be clear, and I think um, it, it would be a very meaningful change in how the tax code is structured, but I think as the movement to repeal and replace last year's bill grows and we move into 2020, 2021, um, hopefully we can see opportunities to um, do something. I've been very impressed with the idea that the people living in poverty, the people uh, on the edge who would be the beneficiaries of this $500 a month are likely to spend almost all of it, a very high marginal propensity to spend and to consume, whereas the people at the top, exactly. the top 1%, aren't. So you'd think that from a dynamic scoring perspective, the economy may grow more quickly, more robustly with this program exactly. than without. Well, there's some research that suggests exactly that, that um, the Roosevelt Institute did a study last year that modeled out what would happen if we created a guaranteed income of about $500 for every American financed through progressive taxation. And what they found is that um, it would boost overall economic output, it would boost GDP by about 7% over the next eight years. So nearly a point of extra GDP growth per year. And, and the reason that um, that wasn't all that surprising to a lot of ec- economists was because of exactly what you mentioned. You know, you, put, you give um, an extra $500 to a family who's struggling to make ends meet. They're going to invest that money in housing, health care, uh, you know, child care costs, whatever is the most urgent need that they have. You give a guy like me an extra $500, I'm going to put that in the bank. I might spend a couple dollars of it, but it's not going to be used in the productive economy. And given that our economy is driven by consumer spending, for the most part, spurring consumer spending with this, um, uh, with a guaranteed income would create meaningful economic growth. And, you know, I I think that it's worthwhile to say that anybody who who thinks about the, uh, you know, how that would affect um, the the wealthy with all the new taxes. I mean, that, the economic growth is good for everybody. It's good for the middle class. It's good for the poor, and it's um, it's good for uh, the wealthy uh, as well. And Chris, you put your finger on what is one of the more effective and true criticisms of the Trump tax reform is that you know the, the R's were saying, hey, we're going to cut corporate tax rates from you know thirty nine seven or thirty five down to twenty one. And it will cause the economy to grow faster. But in fact, what we see happening is they're spending more than 80% of that on stock buybacks and on dividends. So the money is going to exactly the people who aren't going to spend it or can put it in the bank. That's exactly right. Yeah, and you know, it's um, this is the the effects are pretty pretty clear. Even no matter what, you know your your political approach. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a um, has had a uh, a series of pieces covering that. The fact that the the corporate tax cuts, at least thus far, aren't going into R&D and outside of some symbolic small wage increases do not seem to be, um, uh, at least so far, going into um, uh, raising wages. Instead, they're going into stock buybacks. They're going into dividends. 
And, you know, a small group of Americans owns a lot of stock, and those are the folks who are benefiting disproportionately. And that's just going to reinforce the, the income inequality that we have and, uh, and make it worse. And, and it's an old employer trick to you, you give your employee a $1,000 bonus, and then it's done. You don't have to worry about it next year or the year after the year after. It's not an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, you laid out three exactly. principles for your guaranteed uh, payment. Uh, one was regularity, that you get it every month. A second was this uh, expanded definition of work to include students and stay-at-home moms and dads, those who care for the elderly. But the third one was overcoming complexity. And I know one of the yes, challenges we've had with earned income tax credit through the years is people don't know how to apply for it. They don't really know what it is. It sounds complicated. How, how do you address the complexity piece of this? Well, I think it's I think it's um, it's it's a it's a large issue with the current benefit structure. I was in um, uh, Detroit last spring in a conversation uh, about um, with with folks who were struggling to make ends meet, and uh, there was a moderator, and the moderator, the facilitator, asked the question: Does any of you guys benefit from the earned income tax credit? And you go around the group, and people are a little confused. One woman raised her hands. Everybody else was sort of quiet, and then. You know the the one of the criteria for that the facilitator had used to bring the group together was uh, income level of a certain amount. So the, the facilitator knew that several people in this group were were very likely to be getting it. So then she asked the question again. She said, "Do any of you get a check in the spring, after, a couple months after you file your taxes, that um, you know that's a check that 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 you can use for whatever you see fit?" And then. Several people in the group said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. And one woman in particular said, oh, yeah, I got that last year. And she was a woman in her 20s. She had a couple kids at home. She was a waitress. She said, yeah, I got that check uh, last year, and um, I thought it was wrong. So I called up the IRS, and I said, wait a second. You guys made a mistake. You sent me a check for, uh, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was something like $1,500. $1, and I just want to let you know because... I can't be like depositing this money in my account and then have you come back six months later and say I need that because you know I got bills to pay and I'll I need I I, I, will, I will spend it and they said no no what this is is actually the earned income tax credit and you claimed it on your taxes and you know it's your money to spend as you see fit and she said oh okay and she did she bought um, school supplies for her kids she paid a month's rent in advance so she had a little bit more security and she was good to go but the follow-up question was well do you think that you'll get that next year she said I have no idea and it's 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 true that many people have no idea because the current way it's structured it depends on so many different factors how much money you made this year how many kids you have whether or not you're married what state you live in uh, there there are so many different factors that it's not a predictable source of security. And as powerful as it is, I think a lot of the power of it, um, uh, particularly of an expanded earning income tax credit, is in the, the stability and security of knowing that every month you're going to get $500 as long as you're working for in some way to take care of your family or your community, and you're going to be able to rely on that consistently. It's a flat amount, so you know how much it is, and it comes every every month like clockwork, and so thus you, you know that you can rely on it. 
Um, so as we think about mo modernizing their income tax credit, I think the key is to, to adapt it to, unfortunately, the instability that has become synonymous with the modern uh, economy for so many people to make sure that it has the real effect that, um, that people want and need it to have. So people won't need to apply for it. It will be more automatic based on their tax return from the previous year? Well, I think that there are a lot of policy details specifically, like what is the, um, what's the form like? Right now it's extremely complex and we know all the, uh, the, the sort of the most critical pieces of data already on the tax reform, so there is a way to simplify it. Another big policy detail is exactly how do you phase it out, right? Because with any social policy, you don't want to create some kind of cliff where, you know, people don't only want to make $49,999 and not go, you know, a dollar over to, to lose it. So there are, there are um, really important policy design decisions that, um, that the experts that I worked with to inform a lot of the big picture design principles, um, I think are uh, anxious to work on and dive deeper into this year, next year, and as the conversation around this grows. So um, we need to go even deeper with another level of specificity here, but these are the kinds of problems that we can figure out. I think the big challenge is developing really the political will to, to, to say we can be the generation that ends poverty in America and we can use cash as um, the way to do it. On the political will, do you have sponsors in the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House? Is there a champion yet for this plan? Well, there's a lot of people interested, and we'd love it if you would, uh, uh, you know, uh, become one of the one of the big supporters of it. But there's, um, I know that you've done a lot of work on similar economic uh, issues. There are a lot of people who are intrigued. There are a lot of people who. Um, uh, really understand the power of cash and the importance of stability. There are people like Congressman Ro Khanna, Senator Sherrod Brown, who are leading the way with a, uh, a big proposal of expanding the earned income tax credit. However, we're seeing a lot of momentum um, a little bit closer to the um, uh, uh, in the levels of government that are a little bit closer to the lived experience of many struggling people. So for instance, mayors. The mayor of Stockton, California is this um, young man named Michael Tubbs. He's 27 years old, the youngest mayor of a major American city in the United States. And Stockton is a challenged city. It's, it's 300,000 people live there. It, it declared bankruptcy several years ago when it was under different leadership. And Michael Tubbs has decided that Stockton will be the first city to demonstrate the power of a guaranteed income. So the group that I co-run, the Economic Security Project, is working with him and with uh, a group called the Stockton uh, Demonstration to pilot the idea and to provide uh, uh, Stocktonians, a certain subset of Stocktonians, with a guaranteed income of about $500 a month for uh, several years. And so, um, I, I think that that's an important opportunity to, to bring more attention to the issue. Hopefully we'll get other cities who want to do similar things. Um, and, and we can build the momentum so that there is a sense that this is doable, that it um, is uh, 
that it that it is a powerful solution. And you know, as we move into 2020, when there'll be more of these conversations around what are the big ideas in our politics, what are the big ideas when it comes to income inequality. Um, I, I very much hope that this, uh, that the idea of a guaranteed income will be at the center of that debate. Chris, we only have about two minutes left. I, I wanted to take a couple of seconds to read one paragraph from your book in which you quote Dr. King, who's in just a week or so we're going to celebrate their, celebrate, remember the 50th anniversary of his death. And Dr. King wrote in his final book, The Dignity of the Individual Will Flourish When the Decisions Concerning His Life Are in His Own Hands. When he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, and when he knows that he has the means to seek self-improvement. It sounds like your book and your wonderful ideas here fulfill his vision very well. Well, they, they, um, I was certainly inspired by the writings of Dr. King. I mean, in many ways, it's that passage that you read and many of his other speeches are um, became a kind of almost scripture to me in this in this work um, over the past few years because um, you, you know he he talks extensively about how to how to do a guaranteed income but at the end of the day he is making a, a, a moral case the case that no one in America should live in poverty and that cash is the clearest way to respect the fundamental dignity of the individual and provide for her his freedom to figure out what kind of lives uh, they want to lead. So Dr. King led on this, and in fact, the sermon that he gave um, just before uh, he was assassinated was on many of the, the Sunday before was on many of these same themes at the National Cathedral in Washington. The, the, the challenge, that I, I will say though, is that when he wrote those words, 40 million Americans lived in poverty. And now, 50 years later, 40 million Americans live in poverty. And it's a stark reminder that the work that he began and led continues and that we need as broad and uh, diverse a coalition of people as possible to rise up to say we are going to be the generation that takes this on and that you know for once and for all ensures that no one in America lives in poverty. It's a big idea and it may take another 50 years. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't, but I think we have to all roll up our sleeves and work to, uh, to continue that fight. Chris, Chris Hughes, thank you very much for sharing um, many of the most important ideas in your book. Um, you certainly have challenged us boldly to continue to the, fulfill the vision of the nation's founders, Dr. King, and many others. So all of you thank who are you watching so much, tonight, Adam. thank you for watching uh, author, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and bold thinker Chris Hughes. Go buy his book and read it carefully so that we're all uh, really in tune with the wonderful ideas he presents. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.